Welcome to the Gaining Health Podcast. I'm your host, Carly Burridge, and I have been specializing in the medical care of people with obesity and obesity-related complications for over a decade. And this podcast is about how we can revolutionize healthcare and the health and well-being of our patients by providing compassionate, patient-centered, and evidence-based obesity care. At Gaining Health, we support clinicians interested in obesity medicine in numerous ways. We keep clinicians up to date with the latest science and guidelines through this podcast, and we also offer a membership to join the Gaining Health community to clinicians who want to start or optimize an obesity management program or practice. And as a member, you'll enjoy numerous benefits, including access to our recorded masterclasses, a community chat forum that allows you to ask questions and share resources with fellow members, regular live virtual group coaching sessions, access to exclusive digital resources, and much more. We also offer resources such as the popular book, Developing an Obesity Management Program, The Clinician's Roadmap, editable forms and templates, and patient education materials through the Gaining Health Shop, so you don't have to recreate the wheel when designing your program. Thank you for joining us, and let's jump into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Gaining Health Podcast. And today I'm really excited to have a conversation with Dr. Nina Crowley. And today we're doing things a little bit differently because Nina also hosts a podcast on obesity and body composition and things like that, you know, geared primarily towards clinicians called In the Know with Nina. So for today's episode, we're going to share this episode across both of our channels. So rather than it being more of a one-way conversation and me interviewing her, this is going to be more of a two-way conversation. So I am super excited to talk to Nina today about all kinds of obesity-related things. And we already know we share a lot of the same passions So I'm super excited to jump in with Nina. So let me just introduce her real quick. Nina Crowley is an advocate for effective communication, patient-centered approach, and improved access to care for people with obesity. After 16 years as dietitian and program coordinator with Medical University of South Carolina's Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery Program, She's recently joined SICA's Medical Body Composition and Bioimpedance Analysis Division as the Professional Affiliations and Education Manager. And Nina partners with healthcare providers and organizations to provide education and support for using body composition analysis as an outcome. Nina holds her doctorate in health psychology from Walden University her Master's of Science in Healthcare Policy and Management from the State University of New York at Stony Brook, and her Bachelor of Science in Nutrition Science from Cornell University. Dr. Crowley has authored publications on binge eating and food cravings in bariatric surgery patients and enjoys presenting on weight recurrence, obesity bias and stigma, and the importance of careful language for impactful communication. And she can often be found tweeting online at professional meetings at Psycho Dietitian. (laughs) Welcome, Nina. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm excited to have you here with me as well. And I think 
these type of conversations are really what I'm excited to share with our viewers. And so, um, you know, I'll, I'll introduce you as um, as a colleague in the obesity space. Um, Carly is a physician assistant and fellow of the Obesity Medicine Association, and um, just learned about some, you know, some more of your background with leadership with the physician assistants. And I do want to talk to you a little bit more about um, your um, business and gaining health. So I'm going to let you explain that. Um, and then I also wanted to talk a little bit about some of the publications that you've authored. And anybody who knows me knows I'm obsessed with the Obesity Medicine Association's clinical practice statements and all of their really fabulous education. So um, I am constantly sending around your paper on body composition because I think it does a really good um, job kind of presenting all of the um, ways that we can assess body composition and, and kind of really dive into the nitty gritty with that. So um, so yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you about that. And um, for us, I think the, the conversation we're most interested in is sharing some of our shared background with bariatric surgery programs and um, how some of that uh, things that we've learned over the years, that wisdom that we've gained, I think really has a place to apply in the medical space now with the medications. And I know we're both super passionate um, as a PA and an RD um, about the interdisciplinary care and a real comprehensive approach. And, and really, what does that mean? Absolutely. And I love that we kind of both share that background of starting out in metabolic and bariatric surgery because I think that has given us such a good foundation for, you know, what does comprehensive obesity care really look like? And, um, you know, and I think especially like you mentioned, now that we have some of these medications that are really approaching bariatric surgery type outcomes, how can we make sure that patients are still receiving that comprehensive care uh, for obesity outside of, you know, just having the medication. And so, you know, this is something that you and I talked about uh, before we started recording is there's oftentimes this notion that we hear online or from colleagues mm -hmm. or from, from friends, from people uh, that are not as ingrained in the field perhaps as we are, um, that it's kind of an either or, that it's, you know, surgery or medication or that it's medication or lifestyle. And uh, I think we're very passionate both of us um, about making sure that it's it's not an either or conversation, but it's really an and both conversation. Yes, and I think I think that applies in so many areas. You know, the black and white thinking that we can tend to have that cognitive tendency where we just you know sort of push things into these two buckets. And I think it, for sure that's an easier way to think. Um, and I think our our media and our just kind of our way these days strengthens that you know, well, which one is it? You know, I, I always think about this when it comes to, um, you know, never to go to a dinner party and tell anyone that you're a dietitian because you will get all sorts of questions or maybe that you work in obesity care. I'm sure you can relate to that. Um, so when, but if you do admit that, and then you'll kind of automatically get that question, well, well, so what do you think is the, you know, reason that uh, we have an obesity epidemic? Is it that they don't ride their bikes to school anymore, or it's just the fast food? And, you know, people will love to give kind of that sole um, response or that, you know, single reason and kind of a 
of course, a personal responsibility. They love to sort of slap that on and, and give it a black and white reason. And so I think the best thing that we can do is really push everyone into, you know, the gray area, the nuances between, you know, they're not just these two options. There's certainly not one explanation for the cause of obesity. Um, and that trickles down too, to our treatment options. I know that when, when we got in the field, um, you know, one of the things we were talking about earlier is just how, when bariatric surgery, I got into that in 2007 and I cringed at some of the stuff I used to say, but I remember really kind of thinking that for patients, this was the last ditch effort. I even have said that. And I hate that comment, especially how much I know how powerful language is, but that last ditch effort, you know, you've tried everything else to get here. This is the end of the line and how much pressure that would have put on folks to sort of do right. And it's just, it was very black and white. It was very all or nothing. Um, and I think now we know, you know, we, we know more so we can do better, but really looking at all of these as sort of a spectrum of care, um, you know, it, it's fluid. It's not just surgery is the end. And of course, you're always going to have nutrition and behavior and physical activity involvement in that. But now even seeing where medication can come in before, during, after surgery. So it's not, it's not either or, though the media, I think, has not heard that message yet. <laughs> yeah. And I also think it also speaks to the chronic nature of obesity, because I remember when I first got into the bariatric surgery field too. So this was, you know, back in the, around 2011, 2012, and there was starting to be more of a recognition that obesity is a chronic disease, but it was still kind of being talked about, like you said, like this is kind of either a last, last ditch effort or like once you have this, like this will cure your obesity. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we were having the conversations as much yet. I think we were starting to have those conversations around that time of, you know, bariatric surgery is a tool and it is not a cure. And obesity is a chronic disease. And even after you've had this surgery, um, you still have obesity and you, it, there's still that possibility that your body will want to regain that weight. And, and there's still all the other elements, right, that are there's surrounding that, that may have caused that obesity in the first place that we haven't fixed with the surgery, right? And right. so at, at that time, if we're not talking about this as a chronic disease, and patients do experience weight gain after they've had surgery, then they saw that as like the total utter failure. Like I have mm -hmm. failed this, therefore there is no hope, you know, and mm -hmm. this idea of talking about failing a surgery, right? And I think the language, okay. you talk so much about language and how important that is. And I totally agree with you. We don't talk about failure anymore now, right? Mm -hmm. Or we want to try to avoid, some people still use those terms, but really talking about, you know, people responding to a surgery versus non-responders, and then also talking about this as a chronic disease. So, um, you know, people will likely still have to have treatment and follow-up, and that may not necessarily be another surgery or medications, but it might be, you know, and certainly, you know, the lifestyle components are going to need to be continued, and they're always going to kind of struggle with this. This is, this is their journey for the rest of their lives. And um, so I think, the language around that has changed yeah. a lot as well. Have you found that also kind of since the early days of bariatric surgery? 
Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, just like you said, success and failure, that's one of the big, you know, one of my big pet peeves that we really don't mm-hmm. want to be saying that because it just has such an implication to someone on, you know, how they're going to proceed with things that they do in their daily behavior. Right. And so um, I, I think it's our responsibility in the healthcare as the healthcare providers to really, you know, use the neutral language, use language that's not, you know, putting, the ethics on it, success and failure, because patients do that enough. You know, they've internalized this bias enough. And they, I remember, you know, one of the things I struggled with as a bariatric coordinator was really getting my program to have good follow-up. You know, how do we Mm -hmm. fix this problem that we had of poor long-term follow-up? Because we know that if, you know, the longer people go without their team, they may be struggling, they may be doing great. But, you know, if they're out there and they are not coming back for their you know, routine follow-up care, getting their labs checked, getting vitamin, um, you know, kind of checking in on all of that, they might not be doing well. And the longer they're out there not doing well, the harder it's going to be to sort of get back when they're, when they're ready to get back in with their care team. And so um, I really think getting the language right and getting the culture right in the clinic so that people want to return is big. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of, you know, we talk, we'll talk about comprehensive care a lot, but I think that's a big component of it. You know, there's a lot in what we're talking about in an individual visit with an individual patient, but a lot of it is just, are people wanting to come back? Do they feel comfortable coming back? Do they view their healthcare provider as this, uh, you know, top-down authoritative figure that they don't want to disappoint. Do they mm-hmm. they use the language of success and failure so that the patient feels like I'm coming back? You know, I I, I gained a little bit of weight. I I didn't. You know, I failed this. You know, we right. really want to make sure that everybody on the team is, you know, reassuring them that you know you didn't fail this treatment. You know, the treatment may not be working for you. And I do like the language of responder and non-responder, although as we're saying that, that's a little black and white too, right? Right. But there's sort of more of a spectrum of, you know, response to a certain treatment. And I think it's really important that we always make those parallels between obesity care and the other medical conditions, because it's so clear when you explain it from, you know, hey, like nobody's feeling like they need a life intervention when their blood pressure medication is not working, right? No one even knows about that. You might need two, you might need three. Um, You might, you might change your diet. You know, there's, there's different treatment options that are available, acceptable, and, and no one has an opinion certainly on uh, which blood pressure or which cholesterol medicine we're taking, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that example. I I use the blood pressure example a lot when I'm talking about medications, when people ask about, well, how long do I need to take the medication? Right. So I'll often compare, well, somebody's taking a medication for blood pressure and it helps them get their blood pressure down. And then if they stop taking the medication, a lot of times what might happen? So I, I use that example a lot, but the example that I really used to like to use, um, in surgery was back pain. So I actually was really passionate about having an educational class for patients before I ever even met with them one-on-one. And so I kind of talk about the pathophysiology of obesity in that intro class, Mm. Um, talk about the multifactorial disease state of obesity, talk about appetite regulating hormones and when those aren't working correctly. But then I also talk about from the very, before I ever even, you know, would meet with them face to face, is I would compare it to back pain, right? So if somebody has back pain and, you know, and it's at the point where they feel like, you know, they need to see somebody 
for. They need to get some help. So you go to your medical team. And then depending on, we, you know, we do some studies. We find out like how severe is the pain, um, where what's causing it. We might do some tests. We might do some, you know, some imaging studies, different ways to find out like what's causing the back pain, right? And then there's different treatment modalities. Maybe somebody, maybe physical therapy is really helpful for, for one person. Maybe somebody needs medications or injections and physical therapy. Some people might need surgery, right? Depending mm-hmm. on what the nature of the back pain is, how severe. Um, and so we use a whole, you know, wide treatment approach to treat okay. it. But that doesn't mean that it's always going to be gone, right? We know with back pain, sometimes it can come and go. And so mm-hmm. if your back pain was, you know, brought under control, but then, you know, you wake up one morning and it's back or it's starting to get worse again, you would pick up the phone and call your medical team who helped you get your back pain under control and say, Hey, my back is starting to hurt again, you know, and let's get you back into treatment. And then I say, when it comes to weight, you know, a lot of times the first thing that people do is call to cancel their next follow-up appointment because they're so worried about the weight gain because they don't want to disappoint, like you said, or they feel like they're failing something. And so I would have this discussion from the very beginning, right? Like, just like if your back pain was coming back, you would reach out for help. That's when we're really here for you. We're, we're super excited to you know celebrate your successes with you, but it's especially when you're struggling that we want to be there for you. And there's no shame in any of this, you know? So mm-hmm. I would, you know, I would instill that from day one is if you're struggling, please pick up the phone and call us. We are here to help you. And there's, there's no judgment. We're just, you know, we're on your side. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the example that I would use. Yeah. And that's such, you know, to me, what that reminds me of is just in the programming that I did, um, with our program. And as the dietitian, we did so much, you know, pre surgery preparation and education to get people ready just for that new lifestyle. I think Mm -hmm. sometimes, sometimes there would be almost too much and people would view that as a, I mean, it would kind of be a gatekeeping thing. Like, well, if you don't get this right, then how are you going to do well after surgery? And we know that you just kind of sometimes have to go through that portal, right? I always would compare that to having a baby. And mm-hmm. whereas like, you can read all the books in the world and think you know everything, but you kind of got to go through that portal literally to um, figure out what it's all about. And then, oh, you know, this is how it works. So I, you know, I would always sort of, I, I, I'm on the fence with being prepared for surgery versus demonstrating that you could do this without, because I, I think, I think there is that feeling people had too of like, well, like, why don't you just do those things? And then, you know, which ignores, of course, the disease state of obesity. But um, but in that sort of comprehensive educational component, I think that is what I'm not seeing as much of in the, the culture now. And so one of the things that we had talked about is the different options that we have now. So it's not Mm -hmm. just this well-established, you know, surgical program where, you know, it was very structured. You'd have your evaluations with each of the team members. They'd all get together. They'd talk about, you know, do the risks out, do the benefits outweigh the risks? And then you'd kind of move forward with insurance approval. And that's a really long process, really complicated um, process for surgery. And so it's a little bit different with medication now, you know, so we have similar access to care issues, similar, you know, issues with prior authorization and insurance and, um, you know, but there are more and more options for people and there's more and more people who, um, could benefit, you know, from the medical option. So there's gotta be more 
programs and ways for them to get medication. And I think the comprehensive approach, it's on, it weighs on my mind a lot that we need to make sure that our medical patients, just like our surgical patients are getting access to all of those components, because just like it's not, it's not diet, exercise, behavior, or medication. That's a definite and, and it's layered on and it may be, you know, you may need a little medication to curb appetite or to be able to, you know, get rid of some of that food noise that we're hearing people talking about more. And so I've found that people then, then they're able to access some of that education that they've had over the years. And, and they're starting from a place of, you know, I know, I know all this stuff. It's just been hard for me to put into practice. And so all of those components, I think, layer on to it's, it's a both and approach. You know, we, we need nutrition, behavior, movement experts to help people at all the stages um, and not, and not just be one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with you. And, and like we talked about, you know, we, we both saw what that looked like in a surgery program where there's, you know, really good support, at least in most of the surgical programs, of course, every program's different, but on on a lot of the good centers, you know, you're, they're meeting with the dietitian, they're meeting with, you know, the clinicians for, for usually three to six months before they even have surgery. And like you said, sometimes this can be a gatekeeping thing and it's an insurance um, issue. But if it's done, if it's done well, you can really prepare patients well for some of the, the lifestyle changes. And, and, and I agree that there shouldn't be, you know, sometimes there were requirements, somebody had to lose X amount of weight or something like that before they could have surgery. And I, I agree with you there. That goes against the understanding of obesity as a disease. And if they could do this on their own, they wouldn't be where they are, right? Um, and uh, so, so I agree that there's some limitations there. But at the same time, that support that the patient gets before surgery and then also after surgery from the dietitians, from the medical team, uh, we're, they're getting a lot of support around, you know, their activity uh, and also on the mental health side, right? We know that there's at minimum um, the psychiatric evaluation, which, you know, depending on that's how that's done can also be a pro or a con, but at least having mental health professionals involved in the process and having somebody that patients who do need um, more assistance, more help with the mental health side, that they have somebody that they're connected to. So, you know, there's so many good things, I think, about the bariatric surgery type structure. And now, like you said, we have these medications that are approaching uh, bariatric surgery type outcomes, but oftentimes with none of that structure around it. And especially as we're seeing out, it used to be that it was primarily just obesity specialists or maybe endocrinologists that were writing uh, for some of the anti-obesity medications. But with, you know, the explosion of popularity over the last mm-hmm. year or two with and with some of the new medications being that much more effective, we're now seeing patients who are approaching their primary cares and, and other uh, clinicians who haven't had uh, much, if any, training in obesity. And now they're being asked to write these prescriptions. Right. And so I think what you and I both share is this concern that patients are not getting comprehensive support around that. Uh, we want to make sure that they're getting some kind of nutritional guidance, some guidance on physical activity, uh, on the mental health side. Uh, but what does that look like, right? How mm-hmm. can we create 
this comprehensive obesity care in all of these different types of medical settings and and also you know considering the time constraints that a lot of clinicians have uh, with their patients so you know what you and I were talking about is there's probably not one answer to this, right? right? There's not one solution and everybody needs to do this, but let's talk about, you know, for, for each clinic, for each clinician, what are their options to make sure that the patients are receiving that type of comprehensive care, whether it's directly through that provider or whether that provider, you know, partners with, um, you know, other clinicians in their community or online programs or community programs or, um, you know, some kind of way to make sure that patients are being offered that comprehensive care um, around those medications and that it doesn't become like we so often see in medicine where it's just writing the prescription and that's it. And we're not addressing right. the, the lifestyle factors. And there's such a, you know, I always remember kind of explaining to people being a bariatric dietitian people would have questions about surgery and, you know, all of that sort of judgment and bias aside, I just remember feeling really uncomfortable about the gap between like what I would provide for someone who needed some nutrition counseling about, you know, health in general, maybe a little bit about their weight, but then jumping over the majority of people who struggled with, you know, excess adiposity at some level, all the way to the, the more severe who, who, you know, needed surgery to be able to lose, you know, 80 to hundred or more pounds. And so I felt I've, I've been very happy in the past, you know, 15 years that we've, or we do have that gap, you know, that gap of people yeah. who are, that people look at, you know, and say, oh, you're, you're fine. You look good. Right. You know, those are people who right now would be a, probably a candidate for medication for their health or for their comorbid um, conditions and, and that they do have excess, excess adiposity, which is, you know, another part of that. Um, how do we, how do we define that and look at that and, and stage where people are at with their disease process and what kind of resources they need. But um, but yeah, from a comprehensive care approach, you know, even just as you said, that education and that information up front, I wonder how many folks are getting that. Like even just the obesity is a disease and it's not your fault conversation, you know, they're they're probably not getting that in all of these different configurations of how people are getting medication um, these days. So yeah, I do think it is again our tendency to want there to be one answer. And okay, well, my clinic does it right. We do this, we do this, like come to us, we do it all. Well, that may work for some people. Some people may be able to do it in person. Some people might need, you know, virtual care and, and that might work for them. Um, groups versus individual. Some people might need very little surveillance or monitoring and they may be able to do this, you know, kind of in a more solo fashion. You know, all the different layers of introverts and extroverts, right? And how we, you know, interact with our healthcare providers and, and all of that. Um, but, you know, we do, I, I do feel as we discussed that providers and people who are the prescribers 
do have a responsibility to sort of help the patient configure that in some way, shape or form, right? It may not be offering it all in your exact office, but if you're the one prescribing them an effective medication, just like a surgeon, you know, you would never see, hopefully never see a bariatric surgeon provide surgery and then not have any aftercare, not have a staff to take care of, um, you know, any of these things. So I do think there's a lot of lessons learned from that comprehensive approach that we had to the medical realm. And and we're seeing so much more of it. You know, I'm I'm seeing so many more providers assembling teams that include dietitians, that include mental health, uh, behavioral health, that include exercise physiology and uh, physical therapists, you know, any of these different, you know, professionals who can help people, um, you know, implement the recommendations because, you know, I, I love our either or both and kind of conversation here, because it's also not just, you know, oh, you go do those behavior changes. Oh, go work on it. Like, here's your diet, you know, the throw a piece of paper at them, or here's a list of exercises to do. You know, that is very black and white. And if you know anything about behavior change, you know that we don't just do what people tell us to do, right? Right. If anybody's married or in a long-term relationship, you know, you can't just tell someone what to do when they do it. And if, um, if you are effective at that, then good for you. Stay with that person. <laughs> right. Yeah. But no, no yeah. So much more than that. It's so complicated yeah. to do it long-term and, and we have ebbs and flows, you know, like you said, there's not, it's not this straight line where it's like, Oh, I'm on the med. I had the surgery. I'm following the plan. And it's like that forever because it's food. It's complicated. It's social. It's, it's, love, it's enjoyment, it's, you know, all of these things. And for some people, um, for some people, it is easier and more black and white. But for most people, it's layers and layers of nuance. Yeah. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you know, we have to have some kind of as prescribers, we are responsible that our patients are getting that support in some way, shape or form. And that's honestly, that's why I really wanted to start gaining health when I started it a few years ago, because you know, we saw that, you know, the field of obesity medicine was growing, there's more and more interest. And especially now with the new medications, I think there's a real opportunity, like you said, for obesity medicine to fill that gap between lifestyle changes and surgery, like it really Mm -hmm. fills that gap in between. Um, But it's super important that it's done correctly. in, In my opinion, I know you believe this too, it has to be evidence based, it has to be compassionate, this could go one way or another, right? It could go uh, it, it, I think it can really revolutionize healthcare if we really treat obesity compassionate, evidence-based, you know, comprehensive mm-hmm. way. But how that is done really makes a big difference. So it's not a matter of all clinicians telling their patients that they need to lose weight if their BMI is over X. You know what I mean? Like that's the wrong approach. And so, um, you know, that's really why I started gaining health to make sure that we can, you know have resources for clinicians to help educate their patients about the pathophysiology of obesity, that this is complex, is not their fault, um, and that there are evidence-based treatment options. So having a lot of that patient education, how do we structure these programs, but then also that there's not a one-size-fits-all for clinics also, right? Um, Because every clinic is different and what resources they have available, you know, if you're in a rural area versus if you're associated with a large hospital system, like that's going to look very different. And so when I talk about, you know, how to offer comprehensive obesity care to patients, 
it's not like some people are like, oh, is this like a, a turnkey program where, you know, this is how it is. I tell you how to do your program and you just follow this. And I'm like, no, it's not because to me that doesn't work because every clinician is different. Every practice is different. So it's really giving different ideas and different strategies for how this can work for you and your patients. Uh, giving a different ideas about resources that are out there and then creating a lot of the resources too. If you don't have um, some of those resources in place um, so that you don't have to recreate the wheel. But again, it's just so important that, and I created something called the means model, which stands for, um, you know, medical treatment. So, you know, that's talking about pathophysiology of obesity. Also, how do we assess patients with obesity from a medical point of view? Mm-hmm. Also looking at, you know, what labs do we order and, you know, which medications might be contributing to weight gain and uh, what options are there for treatment of obesity in terms of medications and also surgical treatments, right? And making sure that people get good education, evidence-based information around that. Uh, and then the E stands for emotional well-being, right? So mm-hmm. it's it's mental health, but also other emotions because we right. use, you know, eating and, and other things are so tied to our emotional well-being, which includes relationships and, you know, stress management and not just health. the mental health when that people think of, you know, not just mental illness, right? Exactly. Day to day emotions, feelings, behaviors, which everybody has. Right, exactly. And that's why I really called it emotional, not just mm-hmm. mental health, because then people yeah, just think that. about like mental health disorders, right? Which mm-hmm. obviously are a part of that, but not all of it. Um, yeah. And then we have the activity, nutrition, and sleep. And I think, you know, those like are that. all factors that need to be, we need to be asking our patients about and they need to be addressed in some way, shape, or form, yeah. you know? So what I like about your model too is that I think. I was just talking about this recently about evidence-based practice. And so I think everybody loves to throw that term around and they really hone in on evidence. And so, you know, evidence research, what does the data tell us? You know, what is the percent weight loss that you can hope to lose? And, you know, all of these sort of, you know, data research evidence factors. But the real model of evidence-based practice is three things. It's the evidence, best available evidence. It's the provider experience and your intuition and your time over the years of caring for people and what works and what doesn't. And then it's the patient values. And I think those two factors are what, you know, we really have to promote. I think everybody gets the evidence part not mm-hmm. actually not everybody, <laughs> but we focus, <laughs> we focus so much on that. But I think, you know, for what your program does is it's saying, okay, yes, I could provide you the manual, but again, nobody changes their behavior when you hand them a, you know, here's what to do. If that yep. worked, only one person would have the rights to that and they'd be super rich and none of us would be working. So it's got to be you know, how that support, it sounds like, you know, you have a nice support system for other providers to throw ideas around of what works for each other. Mm-hmm. And that's important. You know, hey, I tried this and on paper, this looks good. But when you actually try to roll it out to my patient population, it just didn't work. And, you know, I don't want you to have to go through that same six months of pain. Like, why don't you take a, you know, kind of a page from my book and, and I can tell you what I've learned and then the yeah. patient values. And that's to me, that is really the most important because you can have the perfect, 
way to eat. You can have the best treatment. You can have whatever, but the person has to do, you know, 98% of that work is self-management behaviors done in between doctor's office visits and, and healthcare provider interaction. And so that's this huge category of values and um, beliefs and history and worldview and culture and social economic status, all of that stuff dictates how likely they are going to be able to implement the recommendations or the you know information that they're getting from their team. So I think that part is is so important and why even when people come to you asking, you know, hey, give me the turnkey program or in my world, it was give me the meal plan. You know, right. okay, I can give you my meal plan, but you know, it has, I used to always say like, it has tofu on it. Like, do you like tofu? Oh no, I wouldn't eat that. Well, then like my meal plan's not going to work for you. Right. So we've got to yeah. do this dance together. And I do think that's what makes it so rewarding um, when you're able to offer that to patients and you can see them thrive, but on their terms for goals yeah. that they set for themselves. And they may seem weird or different or not the things we would set for them. But when they're meeting their own goals, that's self-determinism. And that's what's related to like long-term fulfillment and happiness. So it's really, it's really nice when that can align that way. I totally agree. And it's, and it's so, it's so much about just individualizing that care. And I think that's what makes our field so much fun to be in it can also make it somewhat challenging, especially for people who are new, who just want to know, like, just, just tell me, like, what medication should I prescribe? Or like, what's the best nutrition plan? Or what kind of exercise should I recommend for my patients? And, you know, the answer is, you know, there is no one answer, like you said. And it just, I, I remember when I was kind of new to the field, I, I also, I wanted all of those answers and I wanted it to all be like the best evidence and the evidence says we should do this. But what you find out, you know, and sometimes you find this out through experience or sometimes, you know, it, it helps to have somebody tell you this <laughs> who's been through this. It's like, you know, come come to every visit with with an open mind and just ask your patients, what do they need from you? What are they struggling with? Um, what's going well for them? Right. Also celebrating what um, what they're doing well and, and what they've accomplished, because so often patients will focus on or the one time that they screwed up, you know, quote unquote, mm -hmm. right. Or, um, and so just, you know, really being an open book and, and not having a preconceived notion of what you think that patient might need at that visit, but really just being open and, you know, yeah. and having that conversation with them. It's, it's just like, you know, patients, I think often come thinking or wanting a rigid, prescriptive, like you're going to tell me what to eat and that's going to work for me because they've tried and failed so many things right over the years. But the answer is it depends. It depends on you. What do you like? What do you want? Like it's very, it's that conversation. I think you're right. Providers are like that too. They're coming saying, well, there's got to be an answer, right? Like the, what's the, the secret sauce to just telling yeah. people, you know, do this. And I think it's a lovely answer to say, you don't need too, too many tools other than, you know, how do people change behavior and how do you work with humans? And we all, mm -hmm. you know, can kind of draw from our own experience of, of what works and that you don't know what works for someone until you're in that relationship or until you're in a place where they trust you enough to experiment. 
And I love that idea of just that curiosity approach and, and an experiment, like we're going to try this and, you know, you're going to come back and give me some feedback on, did that work? And, and did you like it? And is that something you can continue? And maybe it will be. And, you know, I think that whole approach is, um, it, it also makes it, I think, I guess it makes it so that AI can't do our jobs, right? Eventually. <laughs> it's um, true. It's, it's true. We like write it in an algorithm, even for each other. So yeah. we've got to sort of, you know, figure it out for the person. And um, until people know themselves that well, I don't think there'll be a one size fits all approach, which is yeah. again, what makes it great, right? Like what if yeah. there were just one way to lose weight or one program out there and you weren't on the side of, owning it or doing it, like mm-hmm. then what options yeah. do you have? Right. Yeah. Even that way, I would say even that way with medication, I'm sure you see this a lot. Like, you know, I keep, I love sort of listening to the obesity medic- medicine providers who've been in the field for a long time who were kind of like, Hey guys over here, like we've, we've had medication for a long time. <laughs> it's years, not just yeah. the GLP one receptor agonist or the, um, you know, the, the ones that everybody's hearing about, it, you know, while they may be effective for the majority right now. Um, there's others out there. And so it's important again, again, to think about the people who can't don't have access to that treatment. Don't have, you know, can't continue on that for contraindications or whatever. You know, we also want to be careful of our language so that they don't feel like there's only one way these days to lose weight or to keep, you know, to reduce their excess adiposity. And, you know, I think, that's important how we frame it. It's really important. And I oftentimes remind patients and also other providers that I talk to that, Hey, yeah, some of these new medications, they, they may be great, but we've been using these other medications for a long time. And I've had patients had incredible success and it's, you know, and I tell patients that too. And sometimes it's a little bit of, you know, trial and error and let's see how this, how this works for you. And, and then also I think when it comes to goal setting, as well. This is also where I think this individualization is so important. And I think, you know, we're obviously hearing a lot of discussions around BMI and the limitations Mm -hmm. of BMI. And, and I've always talked to my patients about this and they, cause oftentimes, especially new patients, they want to know like, well, what should my goal weight be? What should I weigh? Should I be at this magical BMI or, Mm -hmm. you know, what do you think uh, my weight should be? And so I often tell them, I'm like, you know what? Um, whatever weight you're at, where you feel good, you can do everything that you want to do. You have good energy. Um, you're not bothered by, you know, like a lot of pain or, or have certain limitations due to your weight. Uh, and if your, your lab markers and your vitals are looking good and you feel good, that's, that's our goal is for you to yeah. feel good. And so, you know, patients, they really appreciate hearing that too, that you're not just trying to put them in a box with, you know, a number or something like that. Um, but also, I mean, to, that also, we always say not to don't shoot all over yourself. right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's such, a, that's such that black and white mentality of like, yeah. there's a right way. There's a wrong way. You're the expert. You're going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do it and we'll have success. It's just, yeah. you know, black and white after black and white decision there. Yeah. And sometimes I, yeah, I worry about those patients who are like, just tell me what I'm, I'm really good at doing what people tell me to do. And if you give me a plan, I'm going to stick to a hundred percent. And I'm always like, 
okay, we're going to talk about this because <laughs> you're worrying me a little bit because a lot of times yeah. it's those patients that are either all on or they're totally off, right? It's this yeah. black and white thinking. And so totally. kind of reining them in and being like, okay, what is the goal here? The goal is, you know, lifelong health and, and habits that you feel like you can continue for the rest of your life that are, that fit into your your schedule, your day-to-day. Tell me about your day-to-day, you know, who lives with you? Who, what, what does your day-to-day look like? What does your schedule look like? What are some of your barriers and whatever plan we put together, we want it to be something that fits into all of that. And that's going to work well for you. Right. And they've probably had a story or there's definitely a story around, you know, why they're telling you too, like, oh, I I need to weigh this much. I need to Mm -hmm. lose this many. Like, I think those are important things to explore. And honestly, for me, it's been a really nice, it's been really nice to see our field moving away from weight and BMI as the only outcomes of interest to either stage obesity or to look at, you know, progress towards a, you know, a goal because, those numbers have a lot of psychological impact, you know, and when we can really dive into, well, where did that come from? Oh, well, you know, something with their mother from years and years ago, or someone told, you know, there, there's a, there's a story behind that. And I think when we can give them other metrics, when we are looking at their other health conditions and getting off medications, I think in, I remember in bariatrics was one of the best yeah. energy and like functional health things of yeah. being able to, get on the ground and play with their grandkids, get on an airplane without feeling uncomfortable. Um, And really for me, the the body composition has been a nice, I think, way to have different data that is behavioral focused, that does capture the individual and it captures more nuance than just weight. And the more we focus on muscle health and looking at, you know, gains in that area, I'm even seeing a lot of people stop focusing just on reducing that excess adiposity and and focusing on, you know, keeping that muscle mass as a priority, gaining when you can, you know, and and really having that be an additional metric. And, and that helps. I mean, that, to me, there's a nice tie into the behavioral functional, like more muscle health, stronger, stronger means more able to do the things that you want to do. And then you can really get to people's core values and they're, that gets them excited to do the things they need to do day in and day out to keep their health at a priority. Totally. Yes. And I I love that you mentioned it's a different metric rather than just that number on the scale, um, which so many people tie so much value to that's, you know, unnecessary. And uh, honestly, that's been one of the biggest things, you know, whenever I've started numerous programs from the ground up, uh, many of them within bariatric surgery programs. And uh, if they didn't have a body composition analysis scale, that was the first thing I did was I would write a proposal uh, to get one because I believe so strongly in um, using that extra, that additional data. It's so educational for patients. They love to see it. It really helps them get away from that negative relationship with the scale and that number on the scale when they're seeing that, you know, or sometimes even their weight's gone up, right? Especially as they're getting into the maintenance stages, if they're doing more resistance training, they're more active and they see, oh my gosh, my muscle mass has actually gone up because of this resistance training. Now they're excited that the number on the scale is actually a little bit higher because they're seeing like, oh wow, all this work I've been doing is paying off. Um, Or, you know, we talk a lot about the prevention 
of muscle mass loss during that weight reduction phase and the importance of, you know, appropriate nutrition and protein and being active to preserve that muscle mass. And it really speaks to a lot of patients. Mm -hmm. They really can see the importance of that. And especially, you know, as we're meeting with some of our our elderly patients as well, and they see that some of their other friends or family members have lost function and have gotten weaker and they don't want that. Right. And so it just really reemphasizes we're talking about quality of life and health and strength and not just that number on the scale. So I, I totally agree with you. And with so many, you know, with so many female patients too, and like you said, aging, I mean, looking at the drop off, um, in, your lean mass as we get older. Um, and, and I think it's complicated for women too, because there's sort of this, you know, Oh, we don't want to lift weights. Do we don't want to bulk up? You know, there's a lot of that that you kind of have to untie sometimes when you're talking to folks about that. Um, but yeah. And I, I think of course we could tell people, you know, just like people did the whole eat less exercise more. I think there's people that are just, well, you know, eat more protein and lift weights, right? Like that's kind of a, a version of that same black and white advice, which is mm-hmm. not helpful. But when you can actually sort of tie their, you know, like a, a patient before they're on medication and you can look at, Hey, look, your yes, your body weight is higher and it puts you in this category. And maybe even your, your adiposity, your body fat is higher, but your muscle mass is really low. So if we're going to put you on a medication, we need to monitor that much more closely. We need yeah. to, you know, maybe have you see a exercise or nutrition person more frequently. We need to focus on that in our visits. I'm going to bring you in more regularly than I would someone who's way over here with their, they've got plenty of muscle mass. And if they lose a little bit while they're losing body fat, we're not as worried about them. So I think it also helps to individualize, but then that person's going to take that a whole lot more seriously than you just giving blanket advice of like, well, you know, got to keep up that protein, you know? And so I think it's, well, how do I do that? And why do I do that? And the people who need to know that before they actually are able to vest their energy in making that change, it really connects the dots for them. Yeah. It makes it real when there's something that they can see that this is a test that was done on them. You're not talking about generalities. Like this is their numbers, their body composition that they're seeing. It makes a big difference. And I think it makes a big difference too in selecting therapy. You know, we talked about, you know, you said, yes, we have some of these new highly effective anti-obesity, these second or third generation anti-obesity medications. We've also had other medications that have been around for a long time. So as clinicians, how do we start to determine Um, you know, which medication might be the right fit for which patient. And I think body composition is really important there. Because again, if you're just looking at BMI, that can really miss the picture, especially with, like you said, like somebody who has sarcopenic obesity, somebody who actually has a very low muscle mass. Well, the approach that you take with them might be very different. You know, they might not be the person that you want to put on a really highly effective anti-obesity medication, um, you know, and really drive down their appetite. So, Uh, You know, again, I I think it gives us so much more information. Um, It helps us with clinical decision making. It really helps our patients. uh, And and just, again, as we keep talking about, like individualizing the care Mm -hmm. for each patient, which I think, you know, ultimately is what all of this comes down to. Like you said, the patient values, um, what they think is important, what their goals are, and then also their individual medical factors and things like that. And tracking and monitoring over time, right? You know, another one of these sort of, you know, either or is it's not 
it's not you take this therapy and you're done or you just get refills for life and you don't come back. It's, um, you know, you're, you're constantly coming in and tweaking and adjusting and optimizing. And so I do feel like it also is a way I really do like the, let's have an, let's try an experiment, right? Like let's Mm -hmm. try eating this way for four to six weeks and then come back and we can kind of, you know, talk about that. How is that going? And do we see any change in some of those parameters that we're looking at with muscle mass or body fat or, you know, whatever the metrics of choice are, um, or, you know, you might not want to exercise or do this physical activity, but we could try it and let's see how that goes. So I do feel like it gives providers another, like another tool to be able to help show the patient in a really concrete way of the way that their behaviors are actually changing and that they actually are having an outcome. I think that's pretty, pretty exciting. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, Nina, I think we could probably talk about this (laughs) for like hours. Let's clear our calendars and (laughs) keep talking. (laughs) But yeah, I, I really appreciate too, just, you know, you having a program for providers that, you know, does take into account all those components of evidence-based practice. And it's a support network for, you know, it's obesity is a chronic relapsing condition and it is hard for people who have it. And it's hard for people who treat it because there's no one way to do it and there's no answer. So I think having a support network for other healthcare providers is also really um, important. And I'm glad you're doing that. Thank you. Yeah, it is really nice to be able to support each other in that way. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, starting so many programs kind of on my own with no other obesity specialists in my clinic or my facility that were doing it, or even when I started my own business, right? Like that whole process can be kind of lonely. And a lot of times we have questions and we want to reach out to somebody or to a community of people who may have similar questions or who are you know, going through similar things. And so um, I just really, I think our patients need that type of community and support to know that they're not alone in this process. And I think we as clinicians need it too. So I, I really like the community that we're building with Gaining Health and our membership. And um, and thank you for everything that you do. I mean, the, the body composition stuff, as you know, is something I talk about so much on this podcast and something I feel so passionate about. So thank you for everything you do and the conversations you have and the important work that you're doing with behavior change and body composition and everything that you're doing with Sika as well. Yeah, well, thank you. So we've, we'll continue this conversation at our meetings this year. I know there's some good ones coming up. I'm excited to, to see you and some of the others at those. Yes, absolutely. And um, I'll make sure to put, I thank you for giving me some of your contacts. Uh, I know you're pretty active on social media, so I'll be sure to put your contact stuff um, in the show notes as well uh, for people who want to follow you and reach out to you for more information. Yeah. And we'll, we'll link to your, um, some of the resources through OMA and some of yours. So if other providers want to connect with somebody and get that provider experience, uh, component of EBP, I think that's uh, a great place to start. All right. Well, thanks so much, Nina. This has been a joy. Thank Thank you for joining us on the gaining health podcast and for your commitment to learning more about how we can care for people with obesity in a compassionate and evidence-based way. If you'd like to learn more about gaining health and how we support clinicians who want to start or optimize an obesity management program, please check us out online at gaininghealth.com. 
And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with a friend or colleague and leave us a review. And lastly, if you'd like to support the podcast financially, even if it's just $5 a month, we would really appreciate it. And you can do so by clicking on our Patreon link in the show notes. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time on the Gaining Health Podcast.